Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Thanks so much, Kurt. Um, So good to be reminded of all of those truths uh, at times like this. That's why we sing. That's why we sing over and over. We sing to our hearts. We sing to each other. We sing to God. And it reminds us of what's true in a season where we need to be, um, where we need to remember that. Um, at this point, before we kind of jump into today's message, I want to just, uh, a message for you. If, um, if you got kids at home and, uh, or, and you're not sure how the next little bit is going to go, there's a lesson for them. You can go to upperroom.ca and just click the little message there that says that we're online. And that'll take you to kind of the page for today's service. And at the bottom there, there's a PDF uh, with a kid's lesson, some activities and things like that. And so maybe one of the older kids, if you've got multiple in your home, can do that. One of the parents, if there's two of you there, or it's something you can do after um, today's message just to follow up uh, with so that um, for those of you that have kids at home, that you're, this is a family experience that you're enabled, uh, enabled to continue to kind of uh, journey in together. Uh, But for this morning, I wanted to begin by asking you a question. Uh, What comes to mind when I say the word new? In fact, if if you were to answer this question, if you heard someone said new, fill in the blank, what would make you go, oh, yes? Okay, so now here's what I want you to do. If you're with somebody, um, you know, you can just tell them what that would be. Or if you're brave, you can write that on the chat. Like, what would fill in that blank go if you heard, hey, someone said, hey, there's a new... You'd be like, ah, get so excited in you. What would that be? So just take a moment and do that, and then I'll tell you what mine would be. So I'm sure there's stuff that's coming up that you're writing in that you're surprised about. You didn't know that about that person. Uh, You're finding out all that. For me, it would be like either a new pair of jeans that I would like or a new Matt Kearney album. Uh, That would be if I knew that. And and here's what they know, but uh, people who study brain and behavior tell us about this whole new thing, is that when you get something new, whatever it is that you like, new, a new, a new car, a new sweater, um, you know, there's a, a, a new song from your favorite artist, a new episode from the, the, the season, the new season of the show you were watching that you loved, that, that actually gives us a rush or it releases a chemical inside of us called dopamine. It's sort of the pleasure chemical and it makes us feel good. It's why um, we we like new. And, and it gets, it gets, it's kind of how we're wired. It's not a bad thing at all. It, it's things that we like that whatever that fill in the blank is for you, that, that you get a rush of dopamine. Now, new is sort of, it sort of depends what the new thing is, right? Like uh, full disclosure here, when I used to work in marketing and a couple of years I was managing products that were, you know, had been around forever, that there was nothing that changed about them. And so what we would do is we would make new packaging and then we would put what we called the new flash on the packaging. And, and so it would make people, when they're walking by, hopefully, um, look at it and, and want to buy it. And then, but you know how sometimes you look up close and it says new, and you're like, new what? And it says new look. Same great taste. You're like, okay, that's not new, (laughs) right? So it really depends what new is that's going to make you, you know, give you that rush, that little dopamine release. Like if it's something that you're not interested in, if you're not a car person, then a new car, you don't care. Um, If you didn't know there was an old one and now there's a new one, it's it's something you're not interested in. Or you said, well, nothing's wrong with the old one. I actually like the old one. New is not interesting to you. Now, here's the thing that I, that I want to suggest to you, because we all do this. This is part of being humans, 
is that the reason we crave or that something we're longing for in, in the new thing is actually much deeper than the latest iPhone or um, a new piece of clothing or a new um, you know, album, is that actually what deep down we're longing for is the new me, the, the new version of me, the new version of you. And we know that actually inside of us, in here, in here, not is all right, not is all well. There are some broken things. There are some old things that, we need, that need to be made new. And there's this longing in us to actually become somebody new. But maybe because you don't really actually believe that, that that's true, or because you don't think it's possible to actually be the new person we settle for a new phone or a new sweater. But I want to submit to you that this, this journey, this longing we have that's in every one of us for the, the new, that actually is tied to the new person, is not something we made up. It's actually something Jesus said. It's actually something that was put in us from the beginning of time. It's something Jesus said, it was a promise of something new that Jesus actually made. And yet, for most of us, maybe some of you were never even aware that he did, and you didn't know this about Jesus. Maybe you don't know much about Jesus. You're still exploring that whole thing. Or maybe if you would, you didn't, you're like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What is it that Jesus promised us that was new? And in this season that we're in right now, it's the season of Lent. It's preparation for the, the 40 days leading up to Easter. Excuse me. And we wanted to, um, in this season, as we think about and look at the last words of Jesus, the final words, the words that he spoke before he, um, he was arrested and he was killed, in, in, as he was becoming aware of the final moments of his life, the words that he said to his closest friends. And one of the things that he said, if I could say this, maybe it was the most important thing he said to his disciples right before he died was about something new. And they didn't quite get it at the time. Maybe we've heard it before. We didn't really understand all that was wrapped in it, or maybe you've never heard it before. But for all of us, for them and for the 2,000 years since then, and for everybody included us today, these are maybe the most important words Jesus ever said. And so we're going to read for them. I'm going to read them from you, or for you uh, together. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. This was the Jewish Passover meal. I'm going to tell you in a moment what that was about. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, this was a meal, it's commonly referred to as the Last Supper, but it was, a, it was part of the Passover uh, celebration that Jews engaged in every year, and I'm going to explain in a few moments what that was. But it's something significant here where Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, I know, like, just 
I kind of had this impression of Jesus growing up. Maybe it was from old paintings or whatever, like Jesus, very somber, silent, subdued, you know, very quiet. But I, but I don't think that's true at all. And certainly when he's saying this, think about this, like picture this when he's saying, I've eagerly desired to eat this with you. In other words, he's with his closest friends, okay? These are people that had become his closest friends. And he knows he's going to die. And so these are, these are really precious moments. They don't know what's going to happen, but he knows. And he gathers them together in this room that he prepares, and he says, guys, I have really wanted to eat this meal with you. I, 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 this is something I have been looking forward to and thinking about, and, and this is really important to me and significant to me. And the reason is because he's going to announce something to them that is really important that they need to know. And I don't know if you caught it, the new thing he said. New covenant. New covenant. Anyone getting a dopamine rush right now? No, <laughs> right? Because Partly because covenant is a word we don't use very often in our day-to-day language. It sort of sounds like old uh, language. We don't actually know kind of what it means. And to be honest, the disciples would have been trying to piece together as they were listening, as Jesus is leaning forward saying, guys, I have looked forward to this meal. There's something I want to tell you that's really important, this new covenant. But for us, and even if you've read it before, or you've never heard it, it just kind of escapes us. And so we need to actually understand and say, if these were, you know, Jesus was announcing something new in the final hours of his life, in the context of a meal with his closest friends that he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. We actually need to understand what is this new thing? Because in this is the new that if I could submit to you, all of us are actually looking for. This word covenant um, is maybe uh, best understood as promise. And I put these letters DTR. This is not a theological term. Okay, this is, this is the, means define the relationship. Okay, so when I was like a, a teenager or a young adult, and if you were kind of interested in this girl and uh, like, you know, and, I, and maybe you've talked a little bit, or you're friends, or maybe you've hung out a little bit, maybe it wasn't a date, you're not really sure, and you're in this sort of thing where you're like, what's going on in this relationship? You knew like a DTR was coming right? A talk where you're going to define the relationship. Now, listen, some of you teenagers, this may be the best thing you heard to this. Like, like if you just take this, maybe this is all you need from today. That sometimes you need one of these DTRs. And basically what it meant was, hey, like, what are we, you know? Now, often I was on the wrong end of those DTRs where it's like, oh, oh, you thought this was a thing. No, it's not a thing. We're just friends. But whatever the talk was, it was about defining the relationship. What is this relationship about? And actually, Covenant, if I can say that, is, is one of those words. What is this relationship about? And so Jesus, in a sense, was saying that there was this new covenant, this new way of describing his relationship with his friends, and in fact, God's relationship with his people. It was, a, it was, the, it was the most significant DTR the world has ever known. Now, implicit in this whole idea of new covenant is that there was an old covenant, and that's part of the problem for us too. It's like, well, if I don't know what the old thing was, what is the new thing? How are they different? Why does that even matter? And so I want to actually, if you'll let me, for a few moments this morning, just jump back to what this old covenant was. Now, some of this may be familiar to some of you. Some of you, this may be totally new, but I want you to stay with me because as we understand what the old thing was, it helps us understand what the new thing is. And as I said, it helps us realize why, wait, this changes everything for me. 
So the old covenant, in a sense, began, there was kind of three parts that I'm going to maybe oversimplify for this morning for the sake of time, but um, it begins with God rescuing his people from slavery. And this was, there was a backstory kind of before this, but we're kind of jumping forward to uh, the, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel that had been in Egypt for 400 years, and, well, more than that, but for 400 years, they had become slaves. And they were under the rule of the Pharaoh, so it was the head of um, that nation who had enslaved them. And so these were generational slaves. In other words, for 400 years, your parents, your parents, parents, and your parents, parents, parents were slaves. And that was where they were in. And they cried out to God for help. And so uh, in the early story in the, from the book of Exodus, which, which means exit, um, which is about the rescue, God comes through the person Moses and is going to rescue his people from slavery. Now, the problem is, is that as he was trying, as Moses was saying, hey, I'm going to lead these people out of Egypt, comes to Pharaoh and says, hey, we're leaving. Uh, Pharaoh wasn't uh, down with the idea. And so he resisted and said, no, you're my, you belong to me. You're my property. I'm not letting you go. And it starts this whole battle between God basically trying to pry the fingers of Pharaoh off of his people and get them out of slavery. And if you know the story or not, it basically comes down to a battle between God and the gods of Egypt. And there's these things that happen because each time he says, Pharaoh, let, let the people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so God, you know, says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And at one point, the Nile, which is the river that ran through Egypt, turns to blood. and All the fish in it die. At one point, there's like uh, frogs that come upon the land. Another time, there's like um, gnats, flies, um, darkness. And if you read it, it's like, it's basically this kind of um, battle between God saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh saying, no, I'm not going to. And so the, the battle kind of escalates. But if you read it, it's actually, there's something interesting about it. All of the, the plagues that came upon them were, were tied to the gods of Egypt. In a sense, actually, Pharaoh himself and every Pharaoh, whoever it was, was considered the god of Egypt and, and sort of the, um, not just the ruler, but the god. They worshiped him. But then they actually had over 2,000 gods. And all of the plagues in some way were tied to um, the gods. So one of the, their goddesses, Heket, uh, had the head of a frog. And so the plague of frogs is like, oh, there was this, it was linked, especially for the Egyptians in their mind, to like, this was the god of, of frogs. And now all these frogs are coming on the land. Um, the Nile was considered holy because it sort of brought life to them. And so they worshiped the Nile. So the Nile turning to blood was like this other thing about a battle with their gods. Um, they also had gods who were the head of flies. There was the, the, the sun god, Ra, um, was one that, uh, famous god that they worshiped. And so darkness was a plague, like sort of fighting with that. And so there's this battle, cosmic battle between God and all of these other gods of Egypt. And ultimately, finally, the ruling god of Egypt, Pharaoh, says, okay, fine, get out, go. And so God rescues his people from Egypt by, um, you know, prying Pharaoh's fingers off through these, all of these miracles that Israel got to see. And so that was the beginning of their story as a people where God said, I rescued you out of slavery. That was how this whole thing started, defining the relationship. Who am I? I am the one who rescues you. This is the, the first movement in that sort of DTR thing. And then as God brings them out, and you'll notice actually if you read all the way through the Old Testament, so many times it says, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. So this was a defining moment for their relationship with this God. He was their savior. He was the one who rescued you. He was the one who was more powerful 
powerful than the God and the gods that had enslaved them, right? Because all these gods, these 2,000 gods, in a sense, they were all the ones who were oppressing um, the Israelite people, including Pharaoh, who was the, the, the leader of all of these gods as the leader of the nation. And so this was God saying, hey, I'm rescuing you from out from underneath those gods, and I am bringing you out. The story continues, and actually the next part of that old covenant is God brings them out of Egypt into the desert, and he says to them, I will be your God. You know, you can trust me. Now, we are now in relationship together. And there's a whole bunch of things that happen in the book of Exodus. If you want to read it, it's a, it's a very interesting read that describes this whole thing. But basically, God appears to them, not in the flesh. They don't see him, but in, in like, like a cloud of fire, a cloud, like fire at night so they can see when they're walking, a cloud during the day that's so visible leading them. But sometimes a cloud that kind of descends on a mountain and there's thunder and lightning. And so basically the, the greatness, the bigness of God, you know, is so evident to them. And he says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. But it was one of those things when you read it, they're like, oh my gosh, like you are, you know, oh my God, like there's no, no one like you. We're really glad you're on our side. You know, like it was this kind of, there was a fear, but you know, in, in a good sense, like overwhelmed at who this God was, that this God who rescued them, who proved that he was more powerful than the gods that were enslaving them, had now become their God. And he said, I'm going to be with you and you're going to be my people. And that was really the second movement of this covenant, this promise. And then thirdly, as they are out in the desert, he gives them the laws. And maybe you're familiar with that old school movie, The Ten Commandments, or even just the idea of the Ten Commandments, um, was these laws that God gave them basically to say, hey, I've rescued you from slavery. I will be your God, and this is how you are supposed to live. In a sense, they were slaves for 400 years, so they had no, the only law they had was their masters. Whenever they told them, they worked all of the time. There was nothing else to do except work and sleep. And so now they've been brought out into this new life, and God's saying, okay, well, this is how you're supposed to live. And these, the Ten Commandments turned into 613. Um, actually say like, and, uh, and that was the number of laws that they had. And there were laws to govern all kinds of things. And, and at first we can go like, oh, that's a lot of rules. But it was in a sense actually trying to help them uh, figure out how to live as a people. Like, how do you treat um, each other? How do you treat your neighbor? What happens if your neighbor ruins some of your property? So there were laws around property. There were laws around money exchanges. There was laws around if you were sick. And then there was a whole bunch of laws to govern what if you didn't keep any of the laws? Like, if you screwed up, if you made a mistake, if you sinned, how there was a whole bunch of laws to deal with that. And so the 10 laws turned into 613, um, partly because they're trying to figure out how to do this. Some of it is just, this is what human beings do. So if the law is, hey, keep the Sabbath day holy, don't do any work, someone's like, okay, well, what's work? Like, can you, can you bake bread? Can you make your bed? You know, some of you are like, hey, that's, can you not? You can't. Mom and dad, I don't have to do this anymore on the Sabbath. You know, we're figuring out what we're not supposed to do. And it turned into these 613 laws. But this essentially was the guts of that old promise that, that defined the relationship. I'm the God who rescued you from Egypt. I will be your God. You're my people. And here's how you're supposed to live. Now, a part of this um, movement in, in, in the first thing when, when they were rescued from slavery was what became the Jewish Passover. And so on the night that they left Egypt, God said to them, hey, you're, I'm going to be taking you out tonight. This is it. After this long battle of, of the leader of the Pharaoh refusing to let them go, God says, no, he's going to let you go. This is going to happen. And so you're going to eat this meal 
of unleavened bread, because it's got to be made quick without yeast, and you're going to kill a lamb and eat that, and this will be part of that marks this night that you were rescued from slavery. And you're going to do this now every year, and this is going to become, as it marks the entrance into your new year, this is going to become a new pattern in your life. And so for, you know, the 1,500 years since that day, every year the Israelites would celebrate the Passover meal. And it would remind them of all of these things. It would remind them that they had become a people, that God had rescued them. And, and so they did the same thing. They ate the same food and the lamb and the bread and everything was all part of that Passover meal. And so now that is that old covenant and that is what the Jewish people knew. And it reminded them, okay, this is the relationship we have with God. And now Jesus, as he comes together with his disciples, it's at Passover time. It's when they celebrate this meal and all that it had meant. And so they're having the meal and that wouldn't have been strange to them. But then Jesus leans forward and says, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. Now, typically when somebody was doing a Passover meal, the host of the meal would say the script. And there was like a script that you said every year about what the bread meant and what the wine meant and what the herbs meant and all of this to retell the story so the people didn't forget the old covenant, right? That's why you did. You retold it. All oh, this is who God is and you're, you belong to him and he belongs to you and this is how you're meant to live. And so the script was the same and Jesus changes the script. Not because he didn't know it. He was a good Jewish boy, would have been raised in a home, would have had 30-something Passovers that he would have been a part of. And he says to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you, on the, you know, before I suffer, before I go. And he takes the bread and he says something else. He says, this meal that for 1,500 years had been about that, Jesus says, now it's about me. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup. And he said, this is like my blood, which is spilled for you. It is a new covenant, a new promise. I am redefining the relationship. What that was about, now this is about me. And this is about you. And this is the new promise. Now, even still, as we think about that, we're like, well, what did that mean? You know, what, what is the new promise? And why does that have anything to do with us? Like most of us here are not Jewish. Maybe you've never been in a Passover meal and you think, okay, well, that, I don't know what that meant for them, but what does that have anything to do with me here and now, even today in the place that I'm in or my family or whatever? What is this new covenant? Well, Jesus actually go, uh, explains it. And then the disciples later on understood. And now we know exactly what he was meaning about the new covenant. And so we fast forward to today and here is the new covenant. It means that you and I are rescued from slavery as well. Now you may say, well, what? Like, I'm not a slave. What does that mean? I, what, I, I, I wasn't, I'm not under the rule. Like, we're free. Okay, maybe some of you would describe your schoolwork or your work like being a slave. But honestly, right? We don't, that's not our reality as people who live in this country. We say, I know, I know identification with this. But can I just pause for a second and say, maybe this is more true about you and about me than we actually realize. I was reading actually the book of Exodus a couple of weeks ago. 
And I was reading, you know, about these plagues that were coming and these, these sort of gods, you know, realizing that these were all kind of Egyptian gods in some way, shape, or form that kind of went crazy on the people. And the one in particular that freaked me out was, I brought my little frog here. Um, this frog actually is very famous in our office because we leave it in each other's offices in strange places. It's part of a joke we play. I know, we have weird sense of humor. But anyways, this frog, it used to make a noise and everything. So I'm reading the plague of the frogs, and... I don't know what it was about that, but like it basically says that frogs multiplied in the land and came up into their houses and was in their food and everything and on their beds. So I'm picturing this like nasty thing. This one's cute, but it's like gross, oh, like frogs crawling on me. And, um, and then it says that they all died. And so there's all these frogs all over their house and they're all dead now. And so they were like shoveling out piles of frogs and like heaping up all these dead frogs. And I was like, that is so disgusting, like gross. And I felt like God saying to me, you know, can I tell you something? Like you don't worship frogs or the Nile or the sun, but there are things in your life that you think you need more and more of. They are the things that you look to, that you go to, to feel better about yourself. That you think, if I could have this, this would satisfy me. This would give me security. This would give me hope. This would give me comfort. This would give me pleasure. See, you don't think about them as gods, but that's what they are. And he made me think about, I was actually speaking um, at a conference that week, at a young adult conference. And it was a pretty big conference. It's like 1,500 young adults. And it's a big stage and lights and your face is up on these huge screens or whatever. And I thought about the fact that I was, I was at that conference, and um, this is kind of funny. On the program of the conference was, so there was four main speakers that day, and I was one of them. And on the conference uh, page, the, the book that you get, it said, it listed the three speakers, and then it said plus more. I, I was the plus more. Like, my name wasn't on it. It made me think of, like, when the Raptors... Um, you know, a few years ago, we're in the conference finals. There was four teams left. And CBS Sports did this poll of like, who do you think's going to win the NBA championship? The Rockets, the Warriors, the Cavaliers, or other? And Canadians were like, how dare they call us other? There's only four teams. Like, you couldn't just, list. you used the same amount of writing to put other. Couldn't you just put the Raptors? And in that moment, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, there's these three other speakers plus and more, which is, I guess that's me. And then when I went into the room, they were going to introduce me to come on the stage. The guy's like, who's a friend of mine, he's like, have you written a book or something? Like, all these guys have written books. They have book tables. Like, what have you done? What am I supposed to tell people you're doing? And we were laughing about it. But I have to tell you, I left there with this kind of little feeling of like, maybe I don't belong or like, I'm not, you know, whatever, famous or whatever, or maybe I, ha I haven't really arrived as a pastor or whatever. Now you could listen to that and go, that's weird. Like, who even cares? But this is the world I live in. And I felt like God saying to me, is that what you want? Like, do you want more of that in your life? It, what is it, recognition? Is it fame? Is it approval of other people? Is it a sense of knowing that somehow you're good enough, that, that you've made it or that, you know, you didn't think you could, but now you could and now whatever that means. Like, what is that about for you? And I felt like he's saying, you know what that's like? That's like those frogs. Like, you think that what you need is more of that. You need more affirmation. You need more approval. You need more recognition. He said, but if you got more and more of those things, or if you keep looking for more and more of those things, that stuff will invade your life like those frogs. It will crawl up into your house, your marriage, your family, your life, your psyche. It will be like deadness kind of all over you, whether you get it or not. And I thought, it was like this feeling going, oh God, I don't want that. 
He said, those things are all like, you know, that there's all these false gods that promise what, whatever they're going to give us, whether it's security or significance or satisfaction. In, in many ways, some of the things that have been rocked in a season like this for us, whether it's your retirement plan or your studies and how well you've been doing or your job or your title or your sense of well-being financially or your health or whatever, they're, they're all good things, but there are things that ultimately we can look to and say, I need this. This is the thing that tells me I'm okay. This is the thing that gives me security. This is the thing that gives me significance. This is the thing that gives me satisfaction. I felt like God saying in this moment, those things can enslave you, whether you get them or not. You can strive, you can give your heart to them. And when they let you down, when they fail you, when you get them and they realize it's not enough or when you can't get them and you try for more, it is so unsettling in you, you feel like you're coming apart. And some of us, even in this season, that's where the source of worry and panic comes from because these are the things that we have counted on to give us a sense of stability and security. And God says, they're not, they will crawl up into your life and invade you and in the end die. And they can affect your relationships. They can affect your psyche. They can affect affect your body. They can affect the way that you treat your spouse or your kids or whatever, your friends or how you think about your schools or your job or whatever. They aren't enough for you. They're false gods. I felt like Jesus said to me, but you know what? If you got more of me, if you let me, if you pursued me, if you fixed your mind on me, if you got more and more of me into your life, you know what happens? You become the person you want to be. You're a better friend. You don't have the, the grip that money, money doesn't have that grip on you. You don't worry so much about what other people think about how you look or how you perform or whether you've succeeded. You're a better employee. You're a better spouse. You're a better parent because you get more of me. I don't destroy you. I'm not the one that you have to make sacrifices for to get. That's what you have to do with all these other gods. You have to make sacrifices to get them. I am the God, Jesus says, who has sacrificed myself for this is my body broken for you. This is my blood for you. I am the God that gives myself up for you. I don't demand payment from you. I thought, man, this is beautiful. This is the slavery I have been rescued from. Not the gods of Egypt, but these false gods, these things that are good, but that are not God and ultimately cannot take the place of God in my life. And if I pursue them, all that happens is I become a slave to them. I live my whole life trying to get more of them, whereas Jesus is the one, as I live my whole life trying to get more of him, he actually frees me. He says, I'm, remember, new covenant, I am the one that has given myself up for you. That's the God I am. And then he also says, like, it's not just I've uh, been rescued from slavery, but now I am a God that you know personally. You see, Israel's God, and they had that relationship with him. He was up on a mountain, and they were like, hey, we're really glad you're on our side, but if it's all the same to you, we'd rather not come too close because they were afraid of him. They, they said to their leaders, you go meet with God. We're a bit too nervous for any of this. And here we see God who actually is able to say, this is my body, this is my blood. I have come in the flesh. The new covenant is that we have a whole new personal relationship with God. Not private, right? We share it as, as a community. He was with his disciples, his friends, but it is personal. See, many of you came from religious backgrounds or even maybe your Christian upbringing was this picture of God, you know, high and holy and up there or maybe a force or whatever. And like, okay, cosmically in charge of the universe and, you know, weighing all the scales and all that stuff, but not close. 
not personal, not flesh and blood, not friend. And Jesus, you know, in one of the other accounts of this meal that he's having with his disciples, he says, I call you friends. You are my friends. We are close. This is now a new relationship. God redefining the relationship that he has with his people. It is personal now. We have a personal relationship. And thirdly, heart change from the inside out. See, when Jesus said these words, new covenant, the disciples would have heard something that most of us wouldn't have known or remembered. That about 600 years earlier, one of God's leaders, a prophet named Jeremiah, said, or basically it was the voice of God saying, I am going to have a, bring a new covenant. There's this old covenant, but I'm going to bring one. 600 years earlier, he said, I'm going to bring a new covenant. And he says in that, I will take the law, you know, the, the tablets of stone, the 613 laws, and I will write it on their minds and I will put it on their hearts. Well, what, what did that mean? Why, why did that matter? Because here's the thing. Laws that come from the outside, you know, the, whatever, the laws, the criminal code, the Ten Commandments, whatever it is, they are meant to change behavior. You need to conform your behavior to these rules, to these laws, whatever they are, whatever they were that you grew up with in your home or in your religion or, as I said, the government, the criminal code, these are the laws. They're meant to guide behavior so that people behave a certain way, certain things they do, certain things they don't do. But most often that law that comes from the outside is not able to change the heart. It doesn't get all the way into the heart, which is why Jesus comes to all of the good law keepers, the religious people, and he says, oh, you've heard it said, okay, don't murder. Good for you. You've never killed anyone. But have you ever been angry with a brother or sister? Have you ever called them an idiot to their face or under their breath? He said, that's like murder. It's hate. You can, the law can conform your behavior so you don't do the bad things, but it doesn't change your heart. He's basically saying it only goes so far. Oh, you haven't committed adultery, haven't slept with another man's wife? Have you ever wanted to? Have you ever looked at a woman and thought things you shouldn't? He's like, yeah, that's the same thing. It's in your heart. He was trying to say to them, you have this law. It maybe have changed your behavior, but it hasn't changed you. And that's why God says, I'm going to give them a new covenant. I'm going to change them from the inside out. So Jesus comes to us and says, okay, I'm actually, this is the new you. This is the promise of the new you, right? Not just moral conformity, not just good behavior, bad behavior, but I am changing from the inside out through the Holy Spirit, not the law, but God, Jesus says, I'm gonna give you my spirit, my presence on the inside of you that will change you from the inside out. So no matter what the law tells you to do, whatever, that's not the most important thing. It's who you're becoming on the inside and you begin to, it affects how you act. You end up treating people the way you're meant to treat them. You, you end up actually following the law, but not because somebody told you to, but because inside your heart has changed. It is now moved away from law and it is about love. And that's why Jesus says the most important thing is love God and love each other. This is the new covenant. This is the new promise. This is the relationship redefined. I have rescued you from things that are good, but ultimately are not God. And if you treat them as gods, they will enslave you. And I have rescued you. And if you bring me as into the center of your life, I'm the one that doesn't use you up and demand sacrifices from you. I have sacrificed myself for you. And now you can know me personally, a relationship with the living God. 
and that you become the person you were meant to be in this new promise, changed from the inside out. Now, friends, when we really contemplate that this is true, that this is actually the new promise that is made possible in Jesus through his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection, that our relationship with God has been redefined, that we are no longer slaves, that we are rescued from being enslaved to things that can't ultimately satisfy us or keep us safe or give us a sense of self and identity and security, but we are invited into a personal relationship with God who changes us from the inside out, that we become the new people, that I become the new me, the me I know I want to be, the deep down the person I was meant to be, that you can become the new you as Jesus changes you from the inside out. When we realize all of this, you know what happens? We do what Israel did when they were first rescued. It says when they came through um, and were finally rescued from Egypt, they wrote a song. They sang. That's what they did. And that's why we actually sing all the time. That's why we're encouraging you as you're watching, you know, from your couch, if you're on your own or you're with other people, and it may feel weird to sing because when you realize, this is what God has done for me, this is who God is, this is what it means that I can become the person that I was meant to be, we sing. And so Kurt's going to lead us in a song, um, maybe new for some of you. It's just words that are a reminder of who God is, this new relationship that we have with God, and that these are all the things that he has done for us, that God doesn't need things from us, but he wants things for us. This is one of those songs, and, and as I've listened to it, and Kurt's going to lead us in it, the words just have stayed with me, and our hope and prayer is that as you, that you leave today, that these words stay with you, that they're a reminder of the new promise, the new relationship that you have with God because of what Jesus has done.